please let Kyle know. Uh, by the way, Kyle has done an amazing job uh, filling in for Essen, as Essen's been on his sabbatical. So I trust that uh, many of you are, are letting him know that and praying for him uh, through this transition and praying for Essen as he returns um, to us pretty soon. So I want to uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here this morning and give you a, a little bit of an explanation as to what I'm doing here. A couple of months ago at one of our session meetings, Kyle was uh, telling us about his sermon series for Essence Sabbatical, and he let us know that he's going to need coverage on July 11th. And he said, hey, if anyone can fill in for me that day, uh, let me know. So if you want to get everyone to be quiet really quick at a session meeting, just ask for a volunteer to preach the sermon. So there I was, sort of looking down, shuffling through my papers, not making eye contact, avoiding it at all costs. Uh, and then I looked and saw that it was on Philippians 3, and I thought, that, that seems really familiar to me, more familiar than just Philippians, because I think Philippians is familiar. And I thought, I think I've preached a sermon on this before. And I looked back at my files, and one, uh, 2015, six years ago, when Essen was on vacation, we were in a series on Philippians, and this very passage was the one that I preached on. So I figured, I have no other choice and no real excuse uh, not to preach today. So if you happen to have been here six years ago, uh, I for, uh, forgive me for repeating. Uh, some of what you hear is going to be old. Some of, of what you hear is going to be new. Um, but let's, uh, let's stand in honor of the Lord and open up to Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone, thinks, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the surpassing worth of Christ. Help us to see it more today. Help your word to enliven our hearts, that we would respond in faith, that we would be drawn to you, and that we would know more about what it means to be your children and to live in your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So there is an entirely too long uh, outline in your uh, bulletin. If that helps you, if not, just put it aside. 
Uh, but let's dive right in. In verse 1, Paul calls the Philippians to rejoice, and we know that this is a huge theme in the book of Philippians. And we've seen already through this sermon series that the Philippians have many reasons to rejoice. In chapter 1, uh, we know that they're told that he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. What a wonderful reason to rejoice. And in chapter 2, in that doctrinal doxology, Paul reminds us of the humility and the exaltation of Jesus and that, how, that, that enables us to live lives of humility, to live lives of sacrifice, to look to others' needs before we look to our own needs. Another wonderful reason to rejoice. Later in chapter 2, Paul told them that God works in them to will and to work for His good pleasure. So the Philippians have many reasons to rejoice, and we do too. Because everything that's said here is absolutely true of all believers and is so important to the way that we live our lives. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells the Philippians that it's no trouble at all for him to continually remind us of these things. But then he goes a bit further and he says, it is safe for you. I thought that's interesting. I love how Paul connects his repeated call to rejoice with this idea of safety. He says that it's safe for them, a safeguard. So did you ever consider that a posture of rejoicing is a posture of safety? Think about that for a minute. Rejoicing, to feel and express joy and delight, to experience gladness in high degree, that's a safe place to be. Consider the opposite. A life marked by complaint and grumbling, something I struggle with deeply. A rejection of the good gifts that God gives. A spiritual blindness to God's wondrous works. That's not a safe place to be. Simply being found in Christ is a basic reason that we have to rejoice. And the expressions in Christ, in the Lord, in Him are seen 164 times in the writings of Paul. Having Christ, this is the Christian's clear reason to rejoice. John Piper puts it this way in one of his sermons. He says, if you want to spend one of the most encouraging hours of your life, take an hour and make a list under the heading, what is Jesus' thing? What can Jesus do? What did he come to do? What did he promise to do? It will be a very long list. And then just go down the list and beside everyone write, he does this thing for me. What he can do, he does for me. What he promised to do, he will do for me. That is what it means to have the Son. So clearly we have every reason to rejoice and that is a good and safe thing for us to do. Now I know that many of us have experienced great loss this year. We're all just emerging from the constraints of a tragic pandemic. Many have been sick. Many have experienced the loss of loved ones or other extremely challenging life circumstances. I tread lightly here, but Paul teaches us that even in these dire and difficult situations, it is still safe for you to rejoice. Romans 3 says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. 
I don't pretend to fully understand this. But I do know and trust the goodness and character of God and that God will not waste our pain and suffering. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, we read, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So in his marvelous and mysterious wisdom, God tells us that rejoicing even in our suffering is a safe place for us to be. And I'm not talking here about a flippant, happy face on hard things in life, but rather a deep recognition and joy that God is God in every circumstance. As we move on in Philippians uh, chapter 3, we see that Paul is bringing up this idea of rejoicing specifically as a safeguard uh, for the Philippians, talking about the threat that faces them. So here, Paul warns the Philippians to look out. And he doesn't just say it once. He doesn't just say it twice. He says it three times. Look out. And he defines this enemy in three ways. He calls those who oppose the gospel dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. Now, we all know that the Apostle Paul doesn't mince words. But why such ferocity of speech? Paul here is speaking out against the Judaizers. Uh, those who insisted that Gentiles, that non-Jews, must be circumcised, must obey Jewish ceremonial and dietary laws before they could become Christians. In essence, he's saying, if you want to come to the Messiah, you must first become a Jew. And Paul's strongly worded condemnation was against these Judaizers and their false gospel to such a degree that it became no gospel at all. First, he calls them dogs. This is a term of derision that some Jews would use to refer to Gentiles who were ritually unclean. Paul turns it around, right? The Judaizers who considered themselves perfectly clean were in fact the filthy ones, the dogs. One commentator calls them men of quarrelsome and contentious spirit who under the guise of religion hide impure and unclean things and who are not only defiled, but defiling in their influence. They have a defiling, dangerous influence. Next, Paul uses the term evildoers. Some translations call them evil workers. They claim to do good by following the law and imposing the law on others. But in fact, because of their emphasis on works, they're working evil rather than good. And finally, he uses a, a play on words to refer to those who find righteousness in their circumcision. And he calls them nothing other than mutilators of the flesh. These Jewish legalists considered themselves to be the ones truly circumcised and right with God. But Romans, in Romans, Paul declares true circumcision is not outward and physical, but it's inward. It's of the heart. It's of the spirit. And again, in Philippians 3, verse 3, Paul makes the bold claim that those who are the true circumcision are marked by three things. They worship by the Spirit of God, they glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul here quickly incriminates the Judaizers for their false doctrine, and he contrasts it with true faith. He goes further to illustrate their falseness, and he does so by putting forth his example of his life before Christ. One that by all worldly accounts is emblematic of the perfect Jewish 
life. If anyone can one-up the Judaizers in their game, Paul can. Paul had the perfect Jewish credentials, and he lists them here. He says in verse 4, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I think we can fit Paul's would-be boasts into three general categories. First, his birth and pedigree. Second, his education. And thirdly, his vocation and his achievements, right? So first, let's start with his birth and pedigree. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day, he tells us. This is his way of acknowledging the fact that he is a lawkeeper from his very earliest days. He's from the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He could trace his heritage all the way back. His namesake is Saul, Israel's first king, also from the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's got history. He's the real deal. He's the Hebrew of Hebrews. Pause here for a moment. I presume that we don't have anyone here who can trace their lineage all the way back to King Saul of Israel, right? None of us in that sense would say that we are a Hebrew among Hebrews. But don't we share the underlying sentiment? Don't we want to be considered the ultimate something? Some of you may know that I'm a high school teacher by trade. One of my favorite parts of the job, absolute favorites, are parent-teacher conferences, right? Uh, Once, many years ago, when I was a young teacher, I met with a mom, and she ached for her son. This kid was handsome and popular. He was an ace student and a great athlete. But the mom was worried because she said that her son was discouraged because he wasn't the best at anything. Again, this was early in my teaching career. I hadn't developed the filter that I have now. Uh, So I burst out, join the club. Who among us is the best at anything we do? At that time, I thought this was just an insecure kid and an overindulgent parent. But the more I think about it, many or even most of us are in the pursuit of being the ultimate something. You fill in the blank. Maybe you pride yourself on being the employee of employees, an athlete of athletes. Maybe you want to be a father of fathers or the mother of mothers. Maybe you feel the need to be the smartest in the room, the most well-traveled, the most well-educated, the most theological. Maybe you can drink more, shoot better, drive the best car, or have the best lawn. Many of these things are not bad in and of themselves. After all, God calls us to do everything we do to his glory. But when these things become primary, that's when we're in trouble. What do you value above all else? Is it money? Comfort? Your freedom? Relief from pain? Maybe for you it's relationships? Politics? Even just the good old days, the way things used to be. Maybe it's the fact that you're just relying on the fact that you're basically a decent, good person. What do you put your trust in? We'll come back to these things a little bit later, but Paul's not done. He goes on after his birth and pedigree to highlight his education. He identifies himself as a Pharisee, but not just that, the son of Pharisees. William Barclay tells us that the Pharisees were the spiritual athletes of Judaism, Their very name means the separated ones. And in Acts, Paul says, hey, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel in strict conformity to the law of the fathers. And Gamaliel was the prominent rabbi 
of his day, of very prominent and considerable influence. So through his education, Paul would have this would-be confidence in the flesh. Paul then moves on to talk about his superiority through his vocation and his actions. He identifies himself as a persecutor of the church, his pre-Christ claim to fame. We know that he stood by approvingly as Stephen was executed. He tells us that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. His former self, Saul, took pride in his ability to track down and persecute men and women of the way of the church. And in verse 6, Paul rounds off his resume with one final gold star. He tells, him, he tells us that he was blameless under the law. So in short, Paul has every historical and moral and legal right to brag, to rest assured in his credentials, his birth, his education, his vocation, all exclaimed his great worth. Take note of the basic trajectory of Saul's life before encountering the king of kings on that road to Damascus. The basic trajectory trends upward, right? One thing after another adds to his worth and fame. He was head and shoulders above the rest and headed higher still. Contrast this. What we saw just a couple of weeks ago in Philippians chapter 2. There we see not an example of self-worth and accomplishment, but one of humility. The king of kings did not cling to all that was rightfully his, but himself, instead he made himself nothing. Literally speaking, he emptied himself. By all worldly standards, Paul's account was overflowing and he knows it, yet it's precisely because of his divine encounter with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, that Paul rejects these things. Rather than placing his confidence in his exemplary birth and accomplishments, he looks instead to the account of a suffering servant, the one who suffered the greatest humiliation, death on a Roman cross. You see, Paul is listing all of his credentials here as, as example of things to be left behind. Looking at his lifelong balance sheet. He tabulates everything in one column. He adds it all up and it doesn't add up. In fact, he's in the red. He says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. A complete and utter loss. Now this is important. Paul isn't saying, hey, I had a really good thing and now I found something better. No. The contrast is so much stronger than that. He says he counts everything else rubbish. Worthless odious. There's been quite a bit of study around this Greek word that's translated in most of our Bibles as rubbish. It could be translated rubbish, trash, refuse, table scraps, something to be left behind. The word also has quite a bit of shock value and can be used as human filth, excrement, and dung. If we use that translation, we can see the strong connection to the flesh Right? Paul says that his life before Christ, in that life, the only thing that the flesh is able to produce of value is excrement, dung. J.I. Packer talks about this a little bit in his book, Knowing God. He says, when Paul says that he counts the things he lost as rubbish or dung, 
he means not merely that he does not think of them as having any value, but also that he does not live with them constantly in his mind. What normal person spends his time nostalgically dreaming of manure? Yet this, in effect, is what many of us do. Are you dreaming of manure? Are you living a life trusting in what amounts to a pile of dung? Where is your confidence? We ought not put our confidence in the flesh, but we tend to hold so fast to the things that we deem precious. We hold these things at all costs. C.S. Lewis in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, says, We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Simply put, there is nothing that we possess, tangible or intangible, nothing inherent to our nature. There is no action or accomplishment produced by us in which we can fully rest our confidence. That's why the words of Jesus in Matthew 16 ring true. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Two more parables from Jesus in Matthew 13. The parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Just like the treasure in the field, just like this pearl of great price, Paul says that he will lose all things to gain that which is of infinitely greater value. Verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Surpassing worth. What a beautiful phrase. The love and knowledge of Christ surpasses all else. It displaces all that we thought was valuable. Knowing Christ excels, exceeds, and transcends all else. Christ's love outdoes, outshines, outclasses, overshadows, and eclipses all else. It tops, trumps, caps, beats, betters, and outperforms. When we consider the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, we need to pursue it at all costs. And since knowing Jesus surpasses all things, it needs to supplant all things. When his love overwhelms our hearts, it needs to displace all else. The only room is for this. Knowing Christ is our singular focus. So what is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? First, let's talk a little bit about what does it do Verses 9 through 11 give us this beautifully succinct treatment of three beautiful doctrines of the Christian faith. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, Kyle treated these very thoroughly last week, so I'm going to go through them quickly today. 
Verse 9, if you look at it, it says, uh, it talks of a righteousness not from the law, but a righteousness through faith in Christ. We see here a clear picture of justification. Paul and we are guilty when we stand with confidence in our flesh. Yet God, through his great mercy, declares us not guilty. And even more than that, he attributes to us the very righteousness of Christ. We are justified just as if we never sinned. Verse 10, Paul speaks about knowing Christ, sharing in his sufferings, and becoming like him. This is a picture of sanctification. God's renewing presence in our life, enabling us more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. And in verse 11, we see Paul's end goal. He says, to attain the resurrection from the dead. This points to glorification. We're going to see that more next week in verses 20 and 21, where Paul tells us our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Justification, sanctification, glorification, three great truths that enable us to know more of the surpassing worth of Christ. Charles Spurgeon illustrates the surpassing worth of knowing Christ really well uh, in his 1864 sermon entitled, Do You Know Him? I commend that sermon to you. Look it up. Spend a little bit of time this week reading it. It it is well worth your time. In it, he makes this claim that essentially we know Christ to a higher degree by experiencing in a practical way what he does for us. So he puts it this way. He says, for instance, I know Christ is a cleanser that he cleanses from spots. He has washed me in his precious blood, and to that extent, I know him. They tell me that he clothes the naked. He hath covered me with a garment of righteousness, and to that extent, I know him. They tell me that he is a breaker, and that he breaks fetters. He has set my soul at liberty, and therefore I know him. They tell me that he is a king, and that he reigns over sin. He hath subdued my enemies beneath his feet, and I know him in that character. They tell me that he is a shepherd. I know him, for I am his sheep. They say he is a door. I have entered in through him, and I know him as a door. They say he is food. My spirit feeds on him as on the bread of heaven, and therefore I know him as such. Spurgeon goes on to illustrate a correct response when we understand a little bit more the surpassing worth of Jesus. He says this, you cry out, I must know him. I cannot live without knowing him. His goodness makes me thirst and pant and faint and even die that I may know him. Is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ your primary focus in life? That's the question. This is hard. Uh, The problem is, according to John Calvin, that the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. Calvin tells us that we're so captivated by the allurements of this world that eternal life fades from view. And the spiritual graces of God are far from being held by us in the estimation which they deserve. 
we so easily allow the seduction or diversion of our hearts to take us away, to take captive our minds and our thoughts and our actions and our words and our deeds. So we must constantly return to the truth that Jesus surpasses all. How do we do that? Uh, One practical application, and this is always the application, is to look for Christ in his word. Uh, In that sermon outline, I've got lots of scripture verses there. I'm going to fly through them quickly. I encourage you this week to go through, look up those passages, dwell a little bit on them, think and pray. Uh, But this practical application of seeing Christ in the word. First, he in fact is the word, full of grace and truth. He's the true light. We see that in John 1. He's the one by whom all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and in him all things hold together. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the one who's highly exalted by God, given the name that is above every name. He's the one who endured the cross, scorning its shame. So look for this Jesus in his word. You'll find him in the Gospels where he lives and loves and heals and hungers, where he prays and perseveres. You'll find him in the New Testament epistles where his sacrifice is explained and his church responds in faith. And you'll find him in the book of Revelations where his eyes are like fire and his face is like the sun shining in full strength and myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels proclaim, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. We don't just find Jesus in the New Testament, right? He's all over the Old Testament too. You'll find him in Genesis 1 where he was present with the Father and the Spirit and gave us of his image and likeness. In Genesis 3, he's the promised one who would crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the beautiful fulfillment of Abraham's words when taking his son Isaac to be sacrificed. He said, God will provide for himself the lamb. Jesus is that true Passover lamb who was foreshadowed in Exodus 12 as the Hebrews covered their doorposts with blood and were spared from God's judgment. Jesus is also the true David, the king whose throne would be established forever and ever, a kingdom that would have no end. And Jesus is the one of whom Job spoke when he cried out, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And Jesus is the suffering servant that Isaiah described. The one who was born our griefs and carried our sorrows. The one who was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The one who brought us peace through his punishment and healing through his wounds. These are just a few pictures of Jesus. The Jesus who surpasses all else. Don't you want to know him more? A second and final practical application, again, is a simple one. Repentance. We need to live our lives trusting in the truth of the gospel and repenting of our sin. When those idols and accomplishments and credentials creep in and seek to distract us 
and gain a foothold in our hearts, we repent. We turn from our sin, we confess it, we call it what it is, rubbish, and we return to Christ. This should be the continued practice of our lives. And more and more we'll be drawn to the things that please God, and our hearts will grow with affection for Jesus. And finally, in all these things, we're to continue to rejoice, recognizing that knowing Jesus is a safe and good place to be. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the safety that is ours in Jesus, that nothing can remove us from his hand, that we are secure in him, that he is our righteousness. There is nothing in us that is worthy only all of the good and perfect things that Jesus has done on our behalf. Give us a greater, bigger, more beautiful and perfect view of the surpassing worth of Jesus, not just in our lives as individuals, but in the lives of our neighbors, our community, and the life of our church. We pray this in Jesus' name.